for insight, the foundations for insight. I think many people, when they begin a meditation practice, they think it's going to be easy. Because big deal, you sit down quietly with your eyes closed. It doesn't seem very complicated or um, difficult. But after we do that and sit down quietly with our eyes closed, we may find that it's the most challenging thing that we've ever done. It can actually be shocking to realize how unruly our minds can be and how incredibly disorganized and um, disorienting they may be. It's the wandering mind that troubles so many meditation practitioners. This talk is based on one particular sutra from the Udana, a discourse that the Buddha gave. And the end of this discourse, it's called the Magiya Sutta because the Buddha is speaking to a monk named Magiya. And the discourse ends with this lovely verse. He says, trivial thoughts, subtle thoughts, mental jerkings that follow one along. Not understanding these mental thoughts, one runs back and forth with wandering mind. But having known these mental thoughts, the ardent and mindful one restrains them. An awakened one has entirely abandoned them, these mental jerkings that follow one along. We don't usually call them mental jerkings, but somehow I think that's sort of appropriate. Do you ever sometimes just feel that you've been jerked out of a meditation or out of one particular thing by by being pulled along by different various thoughts? The setting of this Magiya Sutta takes place at a time... um, Magiya was the Buddha's attendant. Some of you may think of Ananda as being the Buddha's attendant, but Ananda was the Buddha's attendant for the latter years of his life. Earlier on, one of his attendants was named Magiya. And they were staying, just the two of them, in a fairly remote area. And Magiya had gone into the village for um, alms round, and on his way back to the grove where he was staying with the Buddha, he took sort of a circuitous route along the river to take a little walk for exercise and enjoy the pleasant day. And as he was out for his walk between alms round and returning to the Buddha, he found a beautiful mango grove just at the edge of the river where another little stream came down and made a babbling brook and the sun came into the mango grove but the mangoes were big enough or the trees were big enough to provide lovely shade and he saw that mango grove and Magia thought this would be a great place to practice meditation. And so he thought, okay, I'm going to go back and ask for permission to come and meditate in this mango grove. So he did. He went back to the Buddha and after the meal requested permission to go and practice in seclusion all alone in this mango grove. And the Buddha said, not now, Magia, not now. And Magia asked a second time, Please, please give me permission to go practice in seclusion. It's a beautiful mango grove. It's very suitable to meditation. Surely I will, bec- I will um, have insight in such a, a, a conducive place for meditation. And the Buddha again said, not now, Magia. And a third time, this venerable Magia asked the, um, the Buddha for permission. And it's understood that if somebody asks the Buddha the same question three times, He says, okay, do as you see fit. 
So he said, okay, do as you see fit. And Magia, um, the next morning after um, going through the alms round, returned to the um, mango grove and went there to practice meditation. Well, by afternoon, he was going out of his mind. And he was just obsessed. His mind was completely obsessed by thoughts of... um, Thoughts of ill will, thoughts of anger, thoughts of desire and lust, thoughts of confusion and delusion. He was just tripping out on the wandering mind. And so by afternoon, he, went, he, don't, he didn't even make it through the night. By afternoon, he went running back to the Buddha and saying, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Even in such conducive practices, I couldn't stay alone and meditate. And the Buddha understood the problem. And he said, Magia, there are five preconditions that are required that guide a mind that is immature towards one that is mature. And so he gave Magia the teaching on the five preconditions, those of good friends, virtue or strength, engaging in talk on the Dharma, wise effort and wisdom. These five conditions support each other and create a foundation that can support our practice. I find this teaching an encouragement to be realistic in assessing our own approach to practice and to give the time and the sensitivity and the attention to laying a strong and supportive foundation for our own practice. I spent a number of years in India, and during one of those um, winters, I was sitting a meditation retreat that um, Christopher Titmus, a Vipassana teacher from England, was um, teaching. Now, Christopher, in the um, 60s and 70s, had been a monk in Thailand and had done quite a number of traditional practices, and some of them were quite um, austere practices, challenging practices. And... One of the things that he did was he had sat upright, had taken a vow not to lay down. I forgot for how many weeks, um, let's say six weeks, but I don't remember exactly how many weeks he did it for. But it was a while. It's not an easy thing to do. Have you ever gone for even two days without laying down? It's a challenging practice. And so... um, But it was one that he had actually created the conditions to be able to do. So it may not have been easy, but it was certainly within the ability of what he could do. It was not an outrageous thing for him to try. And there were many, um, you know, if somebody spends a lot of time in a monastery and has really dedicated their time morning till night um, every day, to a meditation practice. One often experiments with different kinds of practices and different vows, just to play with it, just to see if the mind gets stuck, if there's any reactivity, just to see where they lead. And so Christopher had mentioned this practice in an example in one of his talks. And there was another um, student on the retreat who picked up on that and thought, okay, I'll sit the whole rest of the week without laying down. Well, now, this particular student, though, was struggling simply to maintain the regular schedule 
of sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, um, and sleeping at night. So it was sort of ridiculous for him to think that just because somebody else could do it, that he should be able to do it. And sometimes we think that we should be able to do things just because we want to do them, we desire to do them. And this can, instead of being conviction, it can simply be overconfidence and arrogance. So we need to assess ourselves, not, not, not in a harsh, judgmental way, but simply assess what is our capacity and what have we laid the foundation to be able to sustain. Not to get ahead of ourselves in an extreme way in practice, nor to think that we can't do something that's difficult now if we take the time to lay the foundation. So when we want to undertake something, we consider, have we sufficiently trained our minds and created the conditions that would support that endeavor? It's not such a difficult question to ask, but too often we just ask if I want to do it, rather than have I created the conditions to support it. So I want to take a few minutes to look at each one of these conditions systematically. And the first one is considered good friends. Who we associate with influences how we think and how we act. That's not a surprising concept, is it? How many people are parents here? A few of you. You know how the, how the influence of, um, of friends the effect of friends have on children, who they associate with, what their interests are. Every alcoholic knows the effect that friends have on either staying sober or drinking. Who we associate with influences how we think and how we act. We're influenced simply by the people that we spend time with. If we want to cultivate an ability Whatever that is, one of the first steps is simply to associate with other people who have already cultivated that ability. Whether it's a technical skill or an interest, a philosophical interest, of a value, um, whatever it may be, one, the, the very first simple step is association. So that we associate then with people who share that interest. But in the Buddha Dharma, the term good friend, Kalyanamitra, particularly means people who support our progress on the Noble Eightfold Path. They're the friends who support realization, awakening, and help sustain our inquiry into the truth of things. A good friend helps us sustain our practice. This doesn't necessarily mean they're cheerleaders for us. Good friends can take many forms. One time when I was practicing in Thailand, I was staying at a monastery um, of Ajahn Damodoro. And um, it happened that there were very few people who spoke English at this monastery, and I didn't speak much Thai. And um, so what would happen is each evening, a nun who spoke almost no English um, 
would still come and attempt to give me meditation instructions, attempt to be my, my good friend. And it was quite successful, actually, even without words. She would use gestures and diagrams and then try to say something about the, the meditation practice, and then we would simply meditate together. So we'd sit facing each other, knee to knee, and we'd just sit together for an hour. Then she'd go off, and the next day she'd come back, and she'd, she'd talk a little bit about the standing posture. And then we would just stand face to face, doing wa- standing meditation for an hour. And she'd go off, and the next evening she'd knock, knock on my door again. And um, she'd sort of describe and signal how to do walking meditation. And then we would just walk back and forth together. And then she'd go off, and the next day, knock, knock, right at my door, she would uh, demonstrate reclining meditation, which has become one of my favorite postures. And, um, and then we would simply do reclining meditation together for an hour. So there wasn't a lot of conversation, virtually none, but I really felt as though that interaction embodied what a good friend is in the Dharma somebody who supports and sustains practice and isn't afraid of a little bit of, of social discomfort, of not knowing what to say or not feeling like she could communicate well enough. What she did was sustain my practice and encourage practice. A good friend also can inspire us and correct our own negative thoughts, our own reactions, or our own wrong wrong thinking, not just through their um, words, but through their natural kindness. And there's a story from the Farmer's Digest that tells this took place in the days when an ice cream sundae cost a lot less. And it takes place with um, the story tells of a 10-year-old boy who entered a hotel coffee shop and sat down at a table. A waitress came up and asked for his order. And he asked the waitress, how much is an ice cream sundae? And the waitress said, 50 cents. So then the little boy put his hand in his pocket, pulled out his coins, and took a few minutes sort of counting his coins. And then he asked the waitress, how much is a plain ice cream? And the waitress said, 35 cents. By this time, she was getting kind of... um, Um, impatient. Some other customers had come to the door and were waiting for tables, and here was this boy kind of counting his his nickels and his pennies. And so she was kind of um, curt to him, a little bit um, brusque. And um, so he said, I'll take the plain ice cream, please. So she went and got the ice cream, put it on the table with the bill, and went to and attended to the other customers and didn't really come back to the table until after the boy had left. Um, The boy had um, finished his ice cream, paid the cashier, and and left. And so the the, um, waitress came back, and she actually began to cry as she wiped down the table, because there, placed neatly beside the empty ice cream dish, were two nickels and five pennies. He couldn't have the ice cream sundae because he wanted to have enough left to leave her a tip. Now, I like that story because very often we live guarded, expecting the worst from people, in a way not allowing people to be our good friends. We protect ourselves from intimacy. We protect ourselves from connection. 
And we may even go so far as to treat our capacity to love as a weakness rather than finding strength through the vulnerability of our hearts. When I was traveling in Asia, I had a stopover in Korea one time. And I had been in Asia for a number of years. And over the years, my heart had actually gotten quite um, hardened. And when somebody would come up to me on the street to ask me a question or to offer help, I would assume that they were going to take advantage of me. (laughs) And um, it was so shocking to be in South Korea because of the incredible hospitality that that culture extended towards me. They have a particular um, appreciation and gratitude towards Americans, as well as a curiosity to somebody who, who looks so different. And I was traveling in the southern part of South Korea, and there were very few signs in English. There were almost no signs in English for anything, and I didn't know Korean. And I was traveling alone. And so I would open up, I'd, you know, I'd try and find a hotel, and you know, everything is written in that kind of script, um, those characters. So I'd be comparing the characters in the glossary that say hotel to the signs on the various buildings to try and figure out which one was a hotel so that I could go in. And um, invariably, if I stopped for a moment and opened my book, somebody would come up and ask what I needed. And if I was saying that I would look, was looking for a hotel, they would then help me find the hotel, carry my bags in, talk to the manager, make sure I good, got a good price, go into the room, make sure it was clean, and then leave me all safe in there and then trot off. It was very strange. I, at first, I, would just, I just expected them to like, you know, ask for bakshish or want to show me their cousin's silk factory or I don't know what. <laughs> But they didn't. They just offered. I would go into noodle shops to um, eat a meal and um, have my meal, ask the waitress for the bill, and find that somebody had already paid for it and had left the restaurant some time before. Just somebody else who was a customer would pay for mine when they paid for theirs. And it was extraordinary. It didn't just happen once. Almost every day there was something that I just found, oh, this is extraordinary. I'd go wait for a bus, and a, a, a group of, of schoolgirls would um, come by and start to talk to me and practice their English. And then they would figure out that I was waiting for a particular bus. Well, it's hard to figure out the buses because, again, they're not in English. And so they would wait for me. One time, this group of six girls waited 40 minutes before the, net, before the bus that I needed came. They got me on the bus, told the driver what I wanted, where to let me off, how much it was, arranged the whole thing, and it just worked quite beautifully. But I found that that experience not only... Um, it made me really appreciate um, the, 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 um, the warmth of strangers, the warmth of their kindness, um, and how that can just soften a heart that may have grown hard over years of travel. So our good friends can come in many forms. They may be personal friends. They may be friends of the world, people that we may never have met and may never meet who simply inspire us, inspire our ethics, inspire our our commitments to um, awakening. They may be people like the Dalai Lama or a poet that we may have never met. But to the extent that they direct us towards freedom and truth, I think they can be called our good friends.
So take a moment just to reflect. Who would you count as your dear friends, as your good friends, your Kalyana Mitra? Now this system um, of the five preconditions is quite progressive. So it's expected that one who has the condition of good friends will develop virtue and restraint. And this virtue and restraint is the area of attention to how is it that we operate in terms of our action, our conduct in the world. Suzuki Roshi was musing, musing um, what, how do you make a cow feel free and at ease? And he thought, you give her a fenced-in pasture. I think the need for structure is quite okay. It's quite a valuable aspect for our lives and our practice. And we can use the training precepts as part of the structure for our practice. The precept to make a commitment to not take life, to not steal, to not cause harm with our sexuality through deceit, rape, or force of any kind, to not lie or use abusive language, and to not use substances that intoxicate the mind. A commitment to these precepts creates a container of safety for our own minds as well as for those we associate with. We're helping to sustain an environment of peace, trust, and ease. And this environment, both internally and externally, then supports the steadiness and concentration of our minds and our meditation. If we break the precepts, if we cause harm through our actions, it's very likely that we don't have much balance around the reactions of mind, of wanting and not wanting, desire and aversion. It's very likely that we react very quickly to those impulses of seeing something pleasant and grabbing for it, seeing something unpleasant and pushing it away. So these precepts give us a little bit of space around the tendency to react. That in that space, there's a great opportunity for peace and for ease because we're not agitating the mind by causing harm. We're not fostering worry, regret, guilt, remorse, or distrust by harming others. Sometimes that can be environmental, social um, distrust. Sometimes it can simply be internal distrust, the internal agitation of a mind that doesn't rest, that doesn't trust itself. So we use restraint and structure to protect ourselves from these tendencies. So it's understood that in the sequence of the five preconditions, one who has good friends and restraint will then devote their speech to talk on the Dharma. So engaging in Dharma talk is engaging in talk that is useful, inspiring, and supportive of practice. Just reflect for a minute. How often do you speak about the Dharma? How often does it actually come up 
in your daily speech. The Dharma may not just be what happens when you sit in meditation and feel the sensations of your breath, but the Dharma is the, is the Dharma of awakening, the dissolution of suffering. It includes ethic, it, ethics, speech, conduct, as well as the subtle movements of mind. Wise speech is to speak what is true and what is useful. How much of what you speak is both true and useful? An awful lot of contemporary speech is relatively useless. Probably the most extreme form of uselessness is to talk about the lives of TV characters. And some people can do that quite a lot in gossip or or in conversations at the office or here or there. But a lot of talk just seems harmless and innocuous. It just seems to be socially what one does to pass the time. But is it just passing the time? Or is it on a more subtle level increasing distraction and confusion in the mind, creating the conditions for distraction? How do we use our speech, our conversations, or our reading, or TV, or the cassettes we listen to, or the talk shows we listen to? How do we use those and how do they affect us? When speech is considered as a precondition, it's not only considered, we're asked to not only reflect upon speech that is harmful and cease to do harmful speech, you know, like gossip and um, backbiting and um, false speech and rude speech, but instead to develop an interest in actually speaking the Dharma, to use the time in our conversations to find the dissolution of suffering. There's a paragraph in the Magiya Sutta I'd just like to read because it, it sort of tells what, a little bit more about this, this speech. Furthermore, Magiya, the, the Buddha is speaking, a bhikkhu, a monk, obtains at will without no trouble or difficulty talk that is effacing, a help in opening up the mind, and which conduces to complete turning away, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. That is, talk about fewness of wishes, talk about contentment, talk about seclusion, talk about being non-gregarious, talk about putting forth energy, talk about virtue, talk about concentration, talk about wisdom, talk about deliverance, talk about the knowledge and vision of deliverance. When knowledge and deliverance is as yet immature, Magia, this is the third thing that leads to its maturity. So when you meet a friend for dinner or for lunch, do you ever talk about the Dharma? I'd encourage you to try it. If it's an interest, if it's interesting enough for you to spend a Thursday evening here, it's certainly interesting enough to have a conversation over a salad or a pizza or whatever it is you're eating. This doesn't mean that you need to be pretentious about it, nor does it mean that you should associate only with Buddhists. 
but I think it gives us the encouragement to cross the linguistic and the cultural divisions so that we learn how to communicate with people who are practicing in different religions, different traditions, and different ways so we can still find a conversation about liberation, about freedom of mind, about realization without getting entangled by the confusions of semantics or traditions. Last year when I was living here and teaching in this community, I um, was really valued the opportunity I had to teach with a local priest in Palo Alto. And we had that wonderful day-long event that was co-sponsored between this community and a Catholic community in Palo Alto. And one of the things that I valued so much about that day was to me it represented an opportunity to cross the religious barriers so that we explored the Dharma together the Dharma of Buddha and the Dharma of Christ. So with these preconditions, it's expected that one who has good friends, restraint, and talk of the Dharma will endeavor to apply wise effort, the effort to abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome. The effort to abandon the unwholesome and cultivate the wholesome requires a commitment of energy, a dedication to put ourselves forth, to try to persevere. It can sometimes be like splitting wood. We may want to split some firewood, and so we strike the wood with an axe, and we may strike it many times. Say we strike it 18 times, and it isn't until the 19th time that, the, that it actually splits the wood. Those previous 18 strikes were not wasted. They were an important part of the effort that finally created the possibility for that 19th strike to be successful. So with these five preconditions, it's expected that one who has the condition of good friends, virtue, talk on the Dharma, and wise effort, will that in, in such a one, wisdom concerning impermanence will grow. So this is wisdom, is the penetrative understanding of the arising and passing of phenomenon. It's a deep insight into the truth of impermanence. Usually we miss this perception of impermanence because we're so familiar with change that we don't bother to notice it. We relate to the conceptual level of experience, the superficial level of perception, thinking things are just the way that we see them, without taking a, the time to look closer in, almost through a microscope, to see the changing nature of experience. Phenomenon is changing so rapidly. But if we don't see this change, the aspect of change, the aspect of impermanence, then we're very likely to try to hold on, to grasp and to cling phenomenon, to cling experience. But the direct perception of change releases this undercurrent of clinging. So it's important to create the preconditions and to take the time to develop them to honestly reflect upon our own lifestyle. 
Are we creating the conditions for a stable mind or are we creating the conditions for a distracted mind? It doesn't work to just cram meditation practice or stress reduction techniques into our lives. We need to take a moment and evaluate, just reflect and consider what it is that our lifestyle is cultivating. So I've spoken about these five preconditions. Good friends, virtue restraint, talk on the Dharma, effort, and wisdom concerning impermanence. I'd like you to reflect for a moment and see, are there any that are particularly strong already developed, you know you're good at those, and are there any that are kind of weak? If you reflected honestly, you'd say, you know, I need to give a little bit more attention to that one. Just reflect for yourself. And consider if there's something that you can do to cultivate that precondition that may be weak. And since this is the time of year for New Year's resolutions, <laughs> I'd like you to just take a moment just to um, turn to somebody near you, maybe in pairs of two or if three people are nearby, just to speak for a minute, share a little bit of what it is you felt was weak and what it is that you might do to cultivate it. Sometimes an area is weak because we don't know how to cultivate it. And chances are we all have different weak areas and maybe the person that you're speaking with might have a suggestion as to what you can do to cultivate it. And we'll just, just for a couple of minutes, you know, a minute each. So maybe for three or four minutes, we'll um, just share amongst yourself and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the whole group. Just turn to somebody, introduce your name and share your weakness. <laughs> I know that was only a few minutes. I hope most of you had a chance to share or reflect, or if not, at least listen. Um, is there anything um, that you would like to discuss or um, ask or share or bring on this topic of the, these conditions? I've, I hope you're... Uh, this, this is a very traditional teaching, and... When I found this sutra, I was totally delighted because I thought, you know, this could have been written right now. It doesn't seem archaic to me at all. It seems very, very practical, very, um, in a way, obvious, but, um, but, but very, very practical. And it's one of the things that I find so delightful in reading the um, sutras of the Buddha, how incredible 
incredibly contemporary those teachings feel to me. This doesn't feel like something that was only useful for monks 2,600 years ago, but it feels just as useful for my life and my practice. So um, that's part of why I had wanted to share this sutra with you. Um, any comments, discussion, please? Um, I have a difficult thing with structure, no doubt about it. Uh-huh. Uh, when you meditate, meditation can be part of the structure, right? Isn't it? Yes, yes. So what other examples would you say of ways to um, is there any particular kind of structure that you're looking for, or is there just a tendency for dispersing yeah, just a tendency to the discipline? Um, a, a commitment to a daily sitting routine, a very strong commitment to the precepts. I mean, the precepts and um, whatever area, like to, to really choose a precept each week and take it very, very consciously, because um, those the, the precepts, to refine the precepts, create the conditions for a, a very disciplined mind. Um, not a restricted mind, but a disciplined mind. And that, um, that gives us a great deal of ability to then direct our minds in the directions that we want to go, rather than directions that um, the tendencies pull us. Um, the time for a disciplined meditation practice. Um, a structure like coming to a sitting group once a week creates a community structure to hold the practice as well. Um, those three features of a, of a weekly sitting practice, uh, um, a daily sitting practice, and you define the times and the places for yourself, but to make some commitment to that. And a periodic retreat, you know, choose for yourself at whatever level of retreat practice you're at. If you've never done a retreat practice, you may say, okay, in the next six months I'm going to do three day-longs. And you put them on your calendar and you find a way to do them. If you've already done a bunch of day-longs, you might say, okay, in the next six months, I'm going to try and find an opportunity to sit one or two weekends. Um, if you've, or you might say, okay, I know I love retreat practice, but it's just hard to find the time to do it. So you say, okay, I'm going to take a week off um, from work, schedule it, and do it. So you structure in what it is you want to do, and then you create the container for yourself which is nice because then the discipline comes from yourself. You know, you choose the time, you choose the way. It's not somebody telling you you have to do it. It's you choose and then you create those disciplines and your structures for yourself. You don't have to do it for the whole rest of your life. If you want to experiment with different commitments, you can say, okay, for the next so long. I like structure myself. I find it really valuable. If I want to undertake a practice, say I want to do metta, I might say, okay, for the next year I'm going to do metta for you know, 20 minutes every day or something. And it's not a lifetime forever commitment, and it's something that I can manage. Then I see where that, where that leads, and then at the end of it, choose. Well, okay, do I want to continue that or not? Other thoughts, comments, questions, please. Okay. Found that it has to be a structure that fits me. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's lots of structures, but finding one that works for me has been a challenge. So that's. Yeah. Oh no. Structure in of itself is great, but then there's a lot of variations. Yeah. Finding something that really works. Yeah. 
oh no, that's really, really important. To take the time to find what works and then to find a relationship to the structure that you've undertaken that is a skill for a relationship. Because we don't, it's not a skill for a relationship to cling structure or to identify our identity as being the one who performs the structure so that then we have to perform the structure. We have to find a skillful relationship to whatever structures we undertake so that they support our realization and support the possibility of living in, in a, a life of um, spiritual depth and non-harming um, and don't just become a ritual that we follow. Um, so, yes, that's important. Dick? It seems to me about structure, it seems like what's difficult for me is somehow getting over the, the hump of internalizing it so that I know that this is something I want to do. Yeah. So it doesn't seem like it's somebody imposing a rule yeah. or an arbitrary structure which makes no sense at all. Yeah. If I could get it so that it's, it's internal and Yeah, and you can do it with an attitude of play, too. You can have some curiosity. Oh, I've heard that a daily practice is something that some other people like. Maybe I could try it. I, had a, I have a student in, New Ma- in Albuquerque who just made a commitment to sit. Eh, she was kind of coming and going and doing this or that for quite a few years. <laughs> and she finally said, okay, for one month, I'm going to sit every day for 30 minutes. And, um, and I don't have to do this the whole rest of my life. I'm just going to do it for 30 days and just see if I like it. And um, I didn't even suggest it to her. She came at the end of the 30 days to a one-to-one meeting with me and said, you know something? I really like this. I think I want to continue. And she had tried it in the spirit of just wanting to see what it was other people valued, because she has a, very, a, a mind that goes here and there, very like a, she's a real planner. Um, and um, it was very interesting, but it was the spirit of it, it was the interest, it was the curiosity, and the sense that she undertook it herself. Um, and she knew she could do it. I mean, anybody can do that for 30 days. Um, and then she could choose herself whether or not to continue it. The, the thing is, if you do it for 30 days, then you're in a different place, and so you have a different point of view about practice. Yeah, yeah it's if based on experience. It, if you did it regularly in your life, then you might think, you know, I'm not going to like that. It's just a big waste of time. Yeah, yeah. But if you do it, then you have a different place to look at it. Yeah. See, this is important to actually assess the place that we're looking from. Are we making a decision based on actual knowledge, or are we making a decision um, based on what, if we haven't actually tried something? Some kind of self-doubt, some kind of fear, we may not be able to do it, it may look weird, or, I don't know, it's kind of cool in this context. Right now, yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to come to the end as we're approaching 8.30. Um, but it's very nice to be here with you and to be here at the end of this year. Um, and I hope I will see some of you on Saturday the 5th for a morning of yoga and meditation. I'm quite looking forward to it myself. So have a good evening and a very happy new year. <laughs>